The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. William Harris. He is president and CEO of Omega Quant. He is an internationally recognized expert on omega-3 fatty acids and how they can benefit patients with heart disease. He obtained his Ph.D. in human nutrition from the University of Minnesota. He did postdoctoral fellowships in clinical nutrition and lipid metabolism at the Oregon Health Sciences University. He recently spoke at the 100th anniversary of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting in Chicago, and I heard him speak at the University of Missouri many years ago where he was speaking about the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids, and I knew the time was right to have you back on, Dr. Harris. There is so much confusion in the area of fats and health. So welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, I'd like to know how you became interested in fatty acid research to begin with. Okay. As you mentioned, I got my PhD in Minnesota and then went on to work with Dr. Bill Connor in Portland, Oregon. And Bill was uh, one of the doctors very interested in how different dietary fats affect cholesterol levels in the 1970s when this was going on. And my first assignment when I got there as a postdoctoral fellow was to find out what salmon oil does to cholesterol levels. He was interested because we knew that animal fats that are saturated fats, hard, you know, solid at room temperatures, we know those kind of fats raise cholesterol. And we knew back then that vegetable oils, liquid fats from plants, lowered cholesterol. And so the question on Dr. Connor's mind was, well, what about an animal fat that's liquid, which was fish oil? Hmm. So is it the liquidness that's cholesterol lowering, or is it the animal versus plantness? So that's why he assigned me to do this study with salmon oil. So we recruited a bunch of volunteers and fed them salmon oil about a um, half a cup a day. They drank it. Uh, it was pretty pretty brutal, but only for a month, so not so bad. And we found it lowered cholesterol. The salmon oil did, just like the vegetable oil did. And so he figured out it's because they're liquid. There's something about the liquidness. We didn't really know anything about the health benefits of omega-3 at the time. We were just interested in uh, it as a dietary oil and something that Eskimos and Inuits were well known to eat. And then uh, studies came out from Dyerberg and Bang in Greenland that there's something beneficial in the marine oils. And then we started looking at the omega-3s then. I've been on the omega-3 train really since 1980. So I know, for decades. Do you ever get tired of doing the same kind of research? Well, it changes. It changes. We, we had a major change, I think, about 10, 15 years ago when we decided to stop looking at the effects of taking fish oil on lipid levels in the blood and start asking uh, if you can measure omega-3 levels in the blood, does that predict risk for disease? 
And that's what we've been doing ever since about 2005 or so. And I noticed that on Omega Quant, your business, and I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about what your company does. But I did go online and did a little research. I can actually send in a sample of my blood, a little dried blood spot, and you will tell me my omega-3 index. What is that? The omega-3 index is the uh, level of the two major omega-3 fatty acids in fish oils, as EPA and DHA. So those are in your blood. They're in your cell membranes. And they're in your red blood cell membrane. So in the blood, we're able to, to detect the levels of EPA and DHA in red cell membranes. And that is a reflection of the amount of omega-3 that's in your liver and your heart and your kidneys and your other organs. It's, it's a good way to get a picture of what your omega-3 status is. And so you're right. It's a, a finger stick, drop of blood on the card, mail it in, not refrigerated. We then send you back a report with your omega-3 index, and we, we'd like to see an omega-3 index up around 8%, and that means 8% of the fatty acids in the red cell are EPA and DHA. Now, Most Americans are around 4 or 5%. I see. So I was going to ask you, do we synthesize EPA and DHA, or, or must they come from the diet? We can synthesize them if we're eating the plant omega-3 ALA. Okay. But not very well. I mean, if you look at vegan cultures, vegetarian cultures, which there are many. Right. Indians, you know, you think of the whole subcontinent. Many of them are vegetarian. They don't eat any EPA and DHA. And they live, reproduce, are healthy. I mean, by and large. As far as we know, their omega-3 levels are quite low. But they still can survive, obviously. And because their diets many times are vegan, when you talk about vegans anyway, Mm -hmm. their diets are pretty healthy in a lot of ways. Low fat, low cholesterol, low calorie. Well, no cholesterol. You don't eat any animal products. Right. So they have a pretty healthy lifestyle in general. So they're probably not uh, as much risk for having a low omega-3 as a typical American would be. Right. Now... There is no recommended dietary allowance for the essential fatty acids that we need in our diet, which are the omega-6 group of fatty acids and the omega-3s. So how... Well, there is a recommendation for the principal omega-6 and omega-3 in the diet for linoleic acid, omega-6. There's a recommendation, but it's based on what prevents essential fatty acid deficiency. And so... What are those numbers? The current recommendations for uh, omega-6, linoleic acid, between 5 and, say, 8 to 10% of energy, which is around 16 grams a day of linoleic acid for men, 12 grams for women. And those are recommendations from the American Heart Association. Okay. And they're, from their perspective, and that's, that's an intake that will be good for the heart. I see. It will also prevent essential fatty acid deficiency, but it's also good for the heart at that level. Sure. Omega-3s, there is perhaps a recommendation from the Heart Association, but again, not from the National Academy of Sciences. No. All, all the National Academy 
their recommendation an adequate intake of alpha linolenic acid exactly. ALA plant omega three is is what I think one point six percent of energy something like that. It's whatever the uh, Americans are typically eating on average. There's they say well looks like everybody's got enough. Let's just call that adequate. Right. Um, it's not really very well thought through. Yeah. Are you lobbying for an RDA? Not directly. I'm certainly helping out groups like there's a trade association called GOED, which is a global organization for EPA and DHA. And one of their missions is to try and get an RDA for EPA and DHA. I see. So I help as I can, but that's the fight that they're fighting. Right. All right. So let's talk about how we might improve our diet through both omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids. We hear people talk about we're getting too many omega-6s, not enough omega-3s. We need to increase omega-3s in our diet. It's not so easy, especially if we're not eating cold water fish. So what kind of advice are you giving your clients? And when you give presentations, what are the bottom line take-home messages for the average eater? Average eater, I focus on the omega-3 side of the equation. I think the problem in America is not too much omega-6, it's too little Mm omega-3. And so I put the omega-6 part aside. I don't get excited about it. We'll talk more about that later. But when you talk about how do you get people to eat more omega-3, you're right. Most Americans never developed a taste for fish. Right. And so eating particularly the oily fish, you know, the Mrs. Paul's fish sticks, things like that. They don't uh, count. McDonald's, yeah, yeah right. They, those are made from uh, a white fish, very low in fat, hence very low in omega-3. So those are not good sources of omega-3. Right. Shrimp is not. That's very common. But things like tuna, particularly albacore tuna, and then, of course, salmon, those are probably two of the best sources uh, that people will eat. I mean, if you can eat sardines, anchovies, herring, and, you know, things like that. Those are also very good sources, but they're also very fishy. So canned fish is great. I mean, canned salmon, canned albacore tuna, Mm -hmm. yeah, those are fine. Albacore tuna has got about twice as much omega-3 per serving as the chunk light tuna does. Oh, interesting. It's also got more mercury. Mm -hmm. A little bit more. Yeah. Are you concerned about that? No. There's been enough studies that looked at risk-benefit ratios for the good side of something like albacore tuna is the omega-3. The downside is there's some mercury in it. They look at model out risk-benefit, and the the benefit of taking the omega-3 outweighs like by a factor of 400 or something like mm-hmm. that. The uh, downside of any organic pollutants or mercury in fish. So, I mean, certainly there's four or five fish that pregnant women should avoid. Right. That's for sure. But that's, you know, they're, you know, shark, king mackerel. Um, tile fish, all, that's one to avoid. Tile fish, yeah, right. that's a weird one, right. Yeah. Right. Well, and shark, I think. When I, when I first heard you speak at the University of Missouri, and I'm talking about probably well over a decade ago, mm-hmm. I like to ask researchers who study different nutrients if they themselves take supplements of that particular nutrient that they're studying. And at the time, you said no. And I that was a take-home message for me. It was like, okay. But now, when I asked you that question uh, earlier in the day, you said that you did. How much do you take and why? 
I take about three grams of EPA and DHA a day. And I do it because I've, I've seen more health effects since you know, when we were together in Columbia years ago. And also because, for a very practical reason, I run a laboratory here where we measure omega-3 levels and we need to have controls, samples that we run with every batch of unknowns that we know the answer to. And so my blood is the high omega-3 control. So I have to keep my omega-3 levels up just to keep our assays working right. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, I know that the American Heart Association recommends that people take omega-3 fatty acids after having a heart attack especially, and I believe the recommendation is 2 grams per day to reduce the risk of having another heart attack. But you're taking 3 grams. Yeah, that's and that's not quite right. Okay, um, please correct me. The 2002 AHA guidelines on, on omega-3 said for people who don't have heart disease, eat about two servings of, of, of preferably oily fish per week. And then for people who've had a heart attack, who have known coronary disease, to take about 1,000 milligrams of EPA and DHA. And then for people who have very high blood triglycerides and need to be treated by a doctor, they can take, I think we said two to four grams, but it's probably more like three to four grams of EPA and DHA, and typically from a pharmaceutical product, pharmaceutical omega-3. Sure. So that was, uh, what, 15 years ago? About five months ago, new guidelines came out. And it's much more complicated because there's much more research now. And um, AHA is, they're waffling terribly <laughs> on the value of supplements in cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. And there are some settings, some particular conditions of, you know, like if you've had a You've had an MI and survived it. They still say it's it's um, can be recommended, can be considered to take omega three supplements, but they're not pushing it. I think the AHA is particularly concerned about not wanting to recommend supplements of any kind, mm-hmm. ever vitamin E, beta carotene, selenium, things that over the years some people thought were good for the heart, and AHA has always resisted recommending supplements. Mm-hmm. They always point to food, mm. which is a good in principle. So I think that's what's going to happen with their stand on omega-3 now is they're, they're fine with omega-3 eating in fish. They're fine with omega-3 for treating very high triglycerides, but they're kind of conflicted on what to say about taking omega-3 uh, supplements for preventing heart attacks. Oh, that's good to know. Thank you for that update. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. William Harris. He is an internationally recognized expert on omega-3 fatty acids and how they can benefit patients with heart disease. I am very interested in looking at populations who do not eat fish. So we've got individuals who either don't like it or who live in the Midwest, they are separated from both coasts where we can find cold water oily fish that carry high levels of omega-3s. So for the vegetarian population, there are plant sources of the shorter chain omega-3s, as you mentioned, ALA, and we find them in, in foods that we enjoy, such as walnuts and green leafy vegetables. Is it enough to eat a vegetarian diet and still protect ourselves or have enough of those omega-3 of the short-chain variety 
to allow our bodies to synthesize the longer chain? It's hard to say. That's not an easy question because the question is enough. What's enough? There's certainly enough to um, live and be healthy and reproduce and the kind of things we like to do uh, as, as humans. Whether you're at your optimal heart risk, low risk for heart disease, are you at your optimal level of omega-3 for uh, preventing the development of cognitive dysfunction, dementia? We don't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that ve- vegans, so I, I said the average American might have an omega-3 index in like 5% area, 5% of the fatty acids in the red cell, EPA and DHA. Vegans are around 3.5%, which is about the same thing as American servicemen are, by the way, but that's another story. Well, that's very um, interesting. The Japanese population, where they eat fish almost historically, they'd eat maybe two or three meals a day with fish. Their average index is something around uh, 9 or 10 percent. Hmm. What is yours? And they, mine is about 10 percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 8 percent is what we think is a healthy target Good. for Americans, and only about maybe 2 to 3 percent of Americans are in that area. All right, let's talk about some of the alternative ways to get omega-3, namely from dairy products that have been fortified or mm-hmm. meat and dairy that come from animals that have eaten exclusively grass or pasture where they are taking in the omega-3 fatty acids from that green source. Sure, yeah. So there are varieties here for your first category that are fortified foods and there are many of them nowadays, and they're fortified typically with EPA and DHA from fish oils, but they've been processed in such a way to be what they call micro-encapsulated. So they're very, very tiny. They're like powders, essentially, of omega-3 that they can mix into breads and they can mix into peanut butter or they can put in milk and orange juice. And so those are all, you don't get much in any one source mm-hmm. or any one food, but it all adds up. That's the general idea. The more yeah. of those eggs, of course. Eggs, they'll feed chickens um, ALA, or sometimes they feed chickens actually DHA and EPA. Right. And then their egg levels of omega-3 go up quite nicely. Yes. And those are possible. Now, the grass-fed story is, is more complicated, particularly if we're talking about animals with rumens, cows. They do eat, and if they're grass-fed as opposed to being grain-fed, uh, they're going to eat much less fat to begin with because there's just not much fat in grass, not much lipid compared to what there is in corn. So they're going to get much less total fat in their in the milk and in the meat. And, and there will be some more of the plant omega-3 that they're getting. The challenge is is they got all these stomachs. they got five stomachs to go through, and some of them uh, harbor a whole ton of bacteria, and the bacteria love to destroy the omega-3 fatty acids. They hydrogenate them. You know, they put hydrogens on the double bonds, and their double bonds go away, so they're not omega-3s anymore. Some get through, certainly, but by and large, there's a kind of a a destruction of the omega-3s by the ruminant bacteria. So it's hard to get, unless you micro-encapsulate, and prevent the bacteria from getting at those oils. But that's not the same thing as eating grass. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen some interesting research, though, looking at the omega-3 levels in 
grass-fed animals, and I'll have to share with you some of those studies, but it does appear that, as you say, it's not a huge amount. It's not like sitting down to a fillet of salmon. But as you mentioned, you know, it all adds up. So having a little mm-hmm. bit more via that alternative source that people eat, you know, generally multiple times a day could make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And I I guess I would see the advantage of, of grass-fed animals, grass-fed meat and milk products as being more lower calorie. I mean, Americans have a big problem with calories. And many of our chronic diseases are ultimately linked back to too many calories and, and obesity. Right. Um, that's a complicated story, too. But, but so th- it would be that advantage I would emphasize for those kinds of products, more so than the omega-3, honestly. I just, I mean, you might double the amount of omega-3 in meat from a uh, corn-fed versus a grass-fed animal. The data I've got in my mind at the moment it might have gone up twice, but it's like you said, it's going from you know um, a half a percent to one percent, that kind of thing. Um, so mm-hmm. not much, but it's something. I would focus on other benefits than try to. I, I wouldn't want people to think that oh, I'm eating grass-fed beef, therefore I don't need to eat salmon. Hmm. There it's are just, just so many. Not, I mean, yeah, there are just so many people that will not eat fish for whatever reason, whether yeah. they don't like the taste of it or it's not affordable, it's not accessible. And so uh-huh. from a dietitian's perspective, I think it's important for us to look at all of the different options. So, you know, we're looking at, at omega-3 sources in plant foods. We're looking at omega-3 sources in, say, the grass-fed meat and dairy. And then we're also looking at supplements. Yeah, yeah. And there certainly are, are vegan or vegetarian-friendly supplements, too, that come from algal products. Right. So you can get DHA and EPA that's not from an animal in pill form. Right. You know, it's interesting because you have been studying heart disease for so many years, and I thought it was interesting that you mentioned calories. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm standing here wondering, is the heart disease risk in our country what are the leading causes for our risk? Is it the fact that we're overly sedentary? Is it the fact that we don't get enough omega-3 fatty acids? Is it the fact that we eat too much of, say, the kinds of foods that are highly processed? And, of course, our microbiome or the microbes in our gut are now, we've become aware that they're playing a role in chronic disease. How do you put all these pieces together? Yeah, <laughs> good question. <laughs> I, I, first of all, I think we need to realize that if you look at the heart disease rates in the 1970s and heart disease rates now, they're down by about at least 50%. Hmm. We have really done a great job of reducing risk for heart disease in the, you know, the, the productive years. Okay. I'm happy to have a heart attack when I'm 90. Right. That's fine. I mean, it's going to be a statistic that says, oh, another death from heart disease, but okay. You got to contextualize this. Yes. When I'm 50, I don't want to have a heart attack. Right. And that rate has gone down for a lot of reasons. Changes in food supply. A lot more doctors are treating cholesterol, mm-hmm. statins, you know, and that has something to do with it. Smoking is way down. Right. Exercise is up for some pieces of the population, not for the younger people. Of course, and obesity, as you know, is growing like crazy. 
in this country, and that's I, I think that's a combination of of sedentariness, screen time, whatever screen it is, and uh, eating too much. You know, it's, 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 the answer to the obesity problem is very simple. It's you move more and eat less. That's that's it. I mean, easy to say, hard to do. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but I think that's I think heart disease is on the way down. Cancer is, I think, now our biggest problem. Mm-hmm. And how do the different fatty acids play a role in the development of cancer? I know that you have really focused on heart disease, but I remember many years ago, early in my career, learning that the, the longer-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids were more susceptible to oxidation and so that they might pose a cancer risk. And perhaps that philosophy has changed. So many things change so quickly in nutrition. But what are your thoughts about other disease risks besides heart disease? Yeah, I think cancer is an area where I don't see a big role for omega-3. It just hasn't. The studies just have not shown. I mean, here and there, you, you find a study where there's benefit, and especially if you're looking at animal studies, you can find benefits. But in the real world of human nutrition, when they study omega-3s in humans, it's uh, it's few and far between where there's a, a benefit. There's never any, there isn't any harm. There's no evidence that there's risk for doing eating more omega-3 in the cancer world. Sure. But I think the the new frontier is going to be above the neck, in the cognitive function dimension. Right. And uh, slowing down, we just have no way that we know of to slow down the development of, of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And the longer we keep people alive, the more likely they are to develop these conditions. And the omega-3s are showing some promise in that area in slowing the development of Alzheimer's disease. There's some growing evidence that um, people who have spinal cord injuries or, or um, traumatic brain injury can can benefit from high dose omega three real quick. It's a therapeutic. That's not a that's not a nutritional. It's not like eating a piece of fish is going to help there. Right. Um, yeah, I remember years ago there had been a presentation at our dietetic association meeting showing the really it was close to miraculous improvements in people who had had traumatic brain injury. And I believe they were looking at veterans and they were also looking at football players, people in car accidents. And using omega three as a therapeutic tool to help the brain heal. Yeah, yeah. I think there there was an NFL player who was um, partially paralyzed. That's now on very high omega three. They were working on uh, trying to help him. So those areas, uh, other areas where omega three is getting very popular is in dry eye syndrome hmm. and in macular degeneration. So the eye is, uh, of course, the eye, the retina is very rich in omega three. Um, but the reason for dry eye benefit is probably the anti-inflammatory effect of the omega-3s. All right. Well, unfortunately, our time has evaporated. I knew it would. Your research <laughs> is fascinating. I will ask you, would you like to leave our listeners with a charge or an action step? Well, yeah. I think uh, my bias is that people need to know what their omega-3 levels are before they do anything about them. It's so you can know when you're when you're taking enough, and so that's why we have developed the omega three index test for people who can track and monitor and optimize your own omega three levels. So I, I just recommend people look into getting a, an omega three test, and before they start taking any kind of steps toward increasing their levels, they don't know where they start. 
All right. Well, we will provide a link to your website, which is omegaquant.com. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. William Harris. He is president and CEO of Omega Quant, and he is an internationally recognized expert on omega-3 fatty acids. Thank you so much for being my guest. My pleasure. Anytime. Anytime. 